As we continue now week five in our study called Best Supporting Actor, the New Testament edition last year in the spring, we went through characters in the Old Testament that don't get center stage but yet played a big role and uh, we're doing the same through the New Testament this summer. And today rather than look at an individual, although we will ultimately focus on one particular person, we're really looking at a group of people that we would refer to as the women who accompanied Jesus, who traveled with Jesus. There's much that can be learned from them. And we're going to look, first of all, in Luke chapter 8. It's page 731 in the Pew Bible. This is going to be our launch point. Then we're going to kind of skip back and do basically a history uh, and then come back to it. But uh, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women We're helping to support them out of their own means. This is really the first glimpse that we see in the Gospels of a significant part of Jesus' disciples, his followers, that we often look at uh, an exclusive group within that that we refer to as the Marys. And often, in fact, historically, we've confused some of these Marys uh, into one person. Uh, But we actually know by this text that there were many women who traveled with Jesus, and they played a very important role. And in order to understand the dynamic between Jesus and the women that followed him and how revolutionary and redemptive it was, it's important that we understand what life was actually like for these women in the first century. Uh, The first century Judaism was very patriarchal, as has been most of society uh, in most places throughout history. And uh, I want to talk about that just a little bit because I do not believe that the Bible teaches that patriarchy was God's original plan. Um, And so to understand the challenge that women have had to deal with under that established way of, of culture that has existed for a very long time, we need to go back and look at what God's original intent was, then ask the question, how did culture become what it is uh, that has resulted in women being subservient and, uh, and uh, seen as inferior and, and less, and what God's intent actually is uh, for women and men alike, and how as a church we should reflect that. And so we're going to take some time and look at that, and that will help us really come to appreciate the life of these women who followed Jesus. And then in particular, we're going to focus on Mary Magdalene, who is actually mentioned in the Gospels far more than most of Jesus' disciples, his male disciples. Uh, Theologians look at Mary Magdalene as sort of the equivalent to the women who followed Jesus as Peter was to the 12 disciples who followed Jesus. And so we'll end up looking at Mary Magdalene and her encounter and God's call on her life. And we'll learn some things from that. But let's go back and start by looking at 
the beginning of the beginning, to understand what I believe Scripture teaches about how God intended men and women to coexist in creation. We go all the way back to the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 2, and um, you hopefully know the story, or at least have heard the story, and maybe um, have laughed about portions of it or heard somebody twist and, and turn the story. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God arranges this uh, sort of uh, object lesson for Adam as he's creating, where Adam uh, has all of the animals that God's created come before him, and he gives them names. And of course, within that, he sees how they're created, male and female, uh, so that it could be observed that there was no partner like that for Adam. Now, God knew that. This was important. And so for the very first time in the, in the book of Genesis, rather than God saying, this is good, this is good, this is good, which he says all throughout his creation, at the end of each day of his creation, he says this is not good. Uh, the Hebrew word there really means this is not done. There's still more work to do. My creation isn't complete. And then we come to this passage. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, it's important that you recognize that what we're reading is the Word of God, but it's a translation. Everybody knows that, right? The Bible was not written in modern English. And for those of you that really love the King James language, the Bible wasn't written in Victorian or in Shakespearean English either. The Bible was written in predominantly Hebrew and Greek and then Aramaic and a couple of other ancient uh, uh, allusions to, to texts, uh, to languages. And so when we come at this, if we're going to really understand a, a, a solid theology of God's intent, our job is really to understand what is communicated in the original language. Because you can take and abuse, and this has been one of those passages that men in particular throughout history, and I would say in the church, have used to diminish women as though they're the help, <laughs> the help, the chefs, the, the, the baby bearers, the housekeepers. You know, they're the help. Adam just needed some help, so we're going we're gonna to provide some, some, some help. But that's not what the word means. In fact, the Hebrew words helper suitable are only combined once in the Bible, right here. The word helper is actually the word azar, and it means one who helps or comes to the aid of. And before you begin to think that it suggests some job description exclusively for the female side of our race, you need to understand that that word is used far more commonly related to God as our help. In fact, here's one example in the Psalms. Say this with me. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. And so before we begin to suggest that a woman is subservient because the Bible refers to her in Genesis 2 as a help, we've got to take God off his throne if we're going to use the scripture that way. Then he goes on, and, and the second word is just as important. The word for um, suitable is the Hebrew word negad, and it means 
opposite or completing or complementing. It pictures this face-to-face, in front of or beside stance. It's not, un, it's not different from John 1 describing Christ's relationship with the Father when he says they were face-to-face. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That word with God means face-to-face. In other words, that's why we believe Jesus is equal with the Father in the Godhead. It's the same language here. So I want to be very clear. When you read the ancient Hebrew, what God is saying as He completes His creation of humanity is that Adam was one part of a greater whole that was made not just good finally, but ultimately very good when He pronounces His work complete, when He finishes His work of creating woman as an equal counterpart as a partner. Now, uh, I would encourage all of you to buy or ha- get access online to what is referred to as the Amplified Bible. How many know what I'm talking about when I talk about the Amplified Bible? The Amplified Bible was, uh, was authored by theologians in the 50s and 60s with the goal of being a study resource by trying to bring out as much as possible the detailed meaning of the original text. You see, the the version that you and I have, theologians and scholars, as they were translating the original language, tried to find that balance between, first of all, verbal word-by-word translation, which often doesn't translate into cultural translation. And so there's a balance of the word-by-word with the concepts being communicated, and then they have to present it in a readable format. Otherwise, if you tried to cover everything, your Bible would be 12 volumes sitting on your, and you'd never open it up. The Amplified Bible takes the original meaning and tries to play out a lot of these nuances. And so this is the Amplified version of Genesis chapter 2. Let's say this together. Now the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, one who balances him, a counterpart who is suitable and complementary for him. Now our society is having a huge debate and conversation about masculinity, femininity, gender fluidity, and all those are important conversations to have, and I don't mean in any way to disrespect them, because frankly, masculinity and femininity is largely a, a cultural construct, right? But to be clear, our race was created male and female. That was God's original intent. And there are things that men, you are not The cat's meow. You are not God's supreme creation, men. When God looked at you alone, He said, not good. (laughs) Let's just be a little more humble about that. Right? We. (laughs) I just thought of that. That was a winner. (laughs) Not good. I wonder how many times he said that about me. Oh, that's not good, no. There are strengths and values that each part of humanity brings, men and women. We are counterparts, and together we make something magnificent, the human race. Now, 
obviously this is also about marriage. The woman comes to the man and they become one flesh, but uh, this is bigger than marriage. This is what our society is to be. Men and women, counterparts in God's creation, working side by side, face to face, complementing one another, and together bringing glory to God and establishing the culture and society that He intended. Now, already I've covered some things that for some of you go, whoa, whoa. I never heard that in the Bible. Well, then frankly, you've, you've heard what men have essentially owned by owning the narrative. And I think God says to that, not good. Right? And so what we want to do is let the Bible speak for itself. I'm not interested as your pastor in trying to twist the Bible to say something that is popular culturally or to diminish things the Bible says that put people at odds against Christianity. I'm not interested in making the Bible say what I'd like it to say. I want the Bible to say what it says, and I'm telling you what it says here, (laughs) and that needs to be our baseline for all the other conversations we have when we look at the rest of the Bible in terms of roles and identity, both in marriage and in the church and in society. All of that has to grow out of this baseline understanding of God's intent. Does that make sense to you? And I'm not going to touch those other things today. My job is to get you today to see that on the same page so that then we can learn God's intent for us broadly in relation to men and women in society and in the church. So if that's what God intended, how did society become so patriarchal? When did that happen? It happened in Genesis 3. Did you know that? What happened in Genesis 3 to all of you Bible scholars? What? The fall. Adam and Eve choose to work contrary to God's plan, to disobey Him. The Bible says sin came into the world and then death through sin. And as a result, our society and in fact human beings right down to their DNA become fallen. And as a result, God now presents to Adam and Eve what's going to follow for them. And you can see this description as both a pronouncement of judgment, but also just the prediction of what's happened now because their nature has been distorted. And so one of the things we see God say to to the woman is this in Genesis chapter 3. To the woman God said, in sorrow you will bear children. You will now compete with your husband for control, and he will win. Now there's lots of different ways that can be worded, but that's what Jesus is saying. That rather than male and female being one partners together, one flesh working in partnership to bring about God's plan for His creation, now there will be competition between the two. In fact, that competition began before this conversation when both of them in turn blamed somebody else for their own failure. And Adam blamed Eve. So the fall created that competition And the physically stronger of the gender, uh, of the race, won. And so patriarchal society grew out of this competition now that is set up. And because men no longer see themselves as partners with the woman to work together, but now vie for control, we have this structure that has been set up that has consistently for millennia dehumanized, abused, and used women. 
which was never God's plan. And to some degree, the church has contributed to that misunderstanding. Any questions? No, I'm not taking questions. We're just moving on. (laughs) So now, let's fast forward now to first century Judaism, where we see this patriarchal, women-demeaning culture strong, very strong. And it will help us appreciate how Jesus came against that in how He enfolded and included women as His followers. And so let me just talk about first century Judaism. And I'm just going to list some things that were true about it. And by the way, um, the strong culture that I'm about to describe still exists very much in the Middle East today and in many cultures. It continues to to exist um, cross religions in the Middle East. Jewish women in Jesus' day, first of all, were restricted mostly to the home. Women were seen as responsible for bearing the children, rearing them, and maintaining a hospitable home. Some taught they should never leave the home except for synagogue. There was a group of men that actually taught and enforced that on their women. Men were never to greet or address a woman in public. Jewish women in Jesus' day almost always were dependent on a father, a husband, or a male relative. Generally marrying young, a woman was almost always under the protection and authority of a man. Her father, her husband, or a male relative of her husband if she was a widow. This left women in a very vulnerable position within first century Judaism. They had little access to property or inheritance except through a male relative. Any money that a woman earned belonged to her husband. Jewish women in Jesus' day were not permitted to study Scripture or to speak in the synagogue. In the area of religious practice, women were in many ways overlooked. Men were, requ- were required to pray certain prayers daily, but women were not. While the study of Scripture was regarded as extremely important for men, women were actually not allowed to study the sacred texts. One famous first century teacher, Rabbi Eliezer, is noted for saying, quote, Rather should the word of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. At the temple in Jerusalem, women were restricted, were restricted to an outer court. In synagogues, they were separated from the men and not permitted to speak or read aloud. Women in Jesus' day had few legal rights or protections. They were not allowed or trusted to bear witness in court. <laughs> men could legally divorce a woman for almost any reason simply by handing her a writ of divorce. A woman, however, had no such right or ability. And it's why constantly we see women who are in destitute places at the time of Jesus. This was the culture that Jesus lived in. It's no wonder that Jewish men, among the prayers that they were required to pray every day, and in some circles still pray every day, one of the prayers was, praise be God that He has not created me a woman. And so in the midst of that culture comes Jesus 
And if you understand it in that context, you understand how radical and revolutionary his treatment of women were. So let's look for a little bit at how Jesus treated women in that culture. First of all, Jesus engages with women publicly. It happens all throughout the Gospels. Of note, the widow of Nain. You may know the story. They come into a small village and there's a funeral procession that's coming by. And Jesus sees the funeral procession and he comes up to the woman and he, in front of everyone, publicly addresses her, don't cry. And then he raises her son from the dead. The woman healed in the temple in Luke chapter 13. Crippled, bent over for most of her life. He addresses her publicly in the outer court of the temple and says, woman, you are healed. And instead of going, wow, that's pretty amazing and cheering for it, the Pharisees are mad because he does it on a Saturday. Like they had miracles every day and they had some rule about you don't heal on the Sabbath. Interesting that there was a rule like that when there were probably not a whole lot of people being healed before Jesus. But they were mad. And, and what Jesus does in defending her is to call her publicly, listen to this, daughter of Abraham. Now what makes that amazing is that no woman was ever referred to that way. Men constantly referred to themselves as sons of Abraham, but women were never allowed to speak about their heritage as though they got anything from that, that legacy, from that bloodline. Jesus referred to her as daughter of Abraham. He elevated her to equality with men as a descendant of the people of Israel. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 is one of the most famous moments. Jesus traveling through Samaria by himself by the well. The Samaritan woman comes by. Jesus asks her for water. And what she says is, actually, if you understand the culture now, pretty dramatic. She says to him, how can you, a Jew and a man, ask me, a Samaritan and a woman, for water? And not only does he continue to talk to her, he engages in a theological, spiritual conversation with her and teaches her about the Messiah. You understand how radical that is? And it's out of, often it's Jesus' teaching to women that are some of the most powerful teaching in all the Gospels. We would never have gotten, for instance, this. A time is coming and has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. These are the worshipers the Father is now seeking Jesus said those to a, a Samaritan woman. Very powerful. Jesus treated women with respect and compassion, not as inferior. The woman with the blood issue, 12 years, some f form of blood issue. Could have been hemophilia. Could have been a female condition. The Old Testament law required that women that were somehow bleeding, whether it's their regular cycle or whether it's from some issue, were ceremonially unclean. And in the Old Testament, especially during the wilderness period, they had to live outside of the camp until that bleeding stopped. So imagine being this woman, 12 years considered unclean for nothing more than the fact that she has a condition that no one can heal. 
separated from the synagogue, seen as an object of God's judgment, separated from people, not, a, not allowed to touch anyone physically, not, uh, not able to be in the presence of God with His people. And she sneaks into the crowd and just kind of sneaks in there and touches Jesus. And she's healed. Scripture says Jesus knew power had come out of Him. And He asked this question not because He needed the answer. He asked the question to teach everyone something. Who touched me? And everyone knew as they turned around who it was who had touched Him. Now, I want to tell you the deeper truth about that question. When that woman touched Jesus, He became unclean ceremonially. And he was fine with it. <laughs> In fact, it was a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus would become unclean for all of us. When he took your sin and mine on the cross, when he stood condemned by God for our sins, when he suffered the punishment that we deserved, he turns to this woman and says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. The woman caught in adultery. The sinful woman who anoints Jesus. Over and over again, those that the patriarchal, condemning, pharisaical society said were unworthy to even be addressed and worthy of judgment, perhaps even uh, death itself, Jesus elevated, expressed with honor, offered grace. He didn't... He didn't let anybody get away scot-free. He called them to a new life, but He elevated them. Jesus welcomed women as disciples. And that brings us full circle to this passage where we began in Luke chapter 8. We see not just a handful of women that we often think of, but we see clearly that there were many women who followed Jesus. They traveled with him. They, they were taught by him. They were among the 70 that were sent out to minister in Jesus' name. So we see this very clearly. One startling example of this is the encounter in Luke chapter 10 in the home of Mary and Martha. And we see that Jesus is there with his disciples and Martha's doing the thing that her society said she was meant to do. She's, she's doing her best to honor God by giving the task that society said you do as a woman. She's, she's preparing the food. She's doing the hostessing. She's in her home. She's caring for Jesus the best we can. And what we see in Luke 10 is that Mary is sitting among the male disciples of Jesus at the feet of Jesus. Now, the fact that Luke says it was at the feet of of Jesus is very important because that's a rabbinical phrase that describes a disciple of a rabbi. So Mary presumed it upon herself to join in at the feet of Jesus as one of his disciples. And when Martha, who hadn't gotten it yet, thinks Mary's going to get in trouble and says, Lord, you know, tell Mary to get here where she belongs. Come in and help me, you know, with the virtual woman stuff. 
I say virtual, virtuous woman stuff. I do that all the time. Virtuous woman stuff. You read Proverbs. They've, they've got to be virtual to pull all that off. Lord, tell Mary to come in and do the stuff that, you know, we've been raised to believe is our place. And what Jesus says to Martha is startling. He says, Martha, you're all confused. You're worried about all these things. Mary has made the right and better choice to sit and be my disciple. And then we see in Luke chapter 8 these women that traveled with him. And we focus for the final moments that we have on one particular woman who was among these disciples. Because what we're going to learn from her is that Jesus actually called and commissioned women right alongside with men to be bearers of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Mary Magdalene plays a pivotal role in that. And so let's look at Mary Magdalene just a little bit. We go back to this passage, Luke chapter 8, and one of the things we see about her in verse 2 is that Jesus had performed a great miracle in her life, delivering her from seven demons. And so the first thing we see about Mary Magdalene is that her life was dramatically changed by Jesus, dramatically transformed by the power of God and the love of Christ in her life. And then what we see in this text is that she, along with other key women, not only traveled but used their own resources to support Jesus and His ministry. And often we take that to mean that Mary Magdalene was actually wealthy. I want to be clear, the Bible nowhere describes Mary Magdalene as wealthy. You say, well, where do we get that from? Well, I think that we assume that you have to be wealthy to be generous. And it's a way of us excusing our lack of generosity by looking at someone like her and saying she must have been wealthy to do that. No, what we know is that she was outrageously generous. And who wouldn't be when your life has been so transformed by Jesus? We know that she was a disciple of Jesus, learning from Him, accompanying and supporting His mission. We also know as we go through the Gospels that Mary Magdalene, along with several women named Mary, which is why they get sort of stuck together, and there's a lot of things that history has said about Mary Magdalene that really diminishes and is, in my opinion, Satan's work to make less of this very godly woman. You know, the whole myth about her and Jesus having kids, that whole Da Vinci Code thing, that's a load of crap. Ask me what I really think about that. Right? Uh, also, the church con convoluted all the Marys and, and believed that Mary Magdalene was a former uh, woman of the night, former uh, prostitute, which is not true also. Um, the fact is, Mary was the most common name for women in Judaism in its day. It's why they often were referred to by their last name. And so Mary... But Mary was noted as the, among the women who were witnesses to both Jesus' death and his burial. When all of the men that Jesus had called had abandoned him in fear except John who accompanied his mother, Mary was faithful and she was an eyewitness to the death and the burial of Jesus. 
Now, as we move forward in Mary Magdalene's story, we see this amazing encounter that she has in John chapter 20. And in this encounter, we see something amazing about how Jesus valued and treated women uh, in his day and intends, therefore, for us to honor and treat them today. So turn with me to John chapter 20. Page 768 in the Pew Bible. This is after the death of Jesus. And he has been raised from the dead. Now the Gospels, if you take them all into account, give a pretty detailed uh, event. If you take all the different Gospel accounts and put them together, you know that there were several women who witnessed the empty tomb and came back and gave witness to the men. But at some point we see Mary Magdalene having this encounter in the garden, beginning at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Jesus then said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means rabbi teacher. You see the important allusion there to her followership, her discipleship of him. Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the good news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, can we please take this amazing moment and set it inside the culture that we have carefully created and use it to finalize our picture of how Jesus came against that and revolutionized our understanding of the role of women to look at Mary in this moment. Jesus' choice of a person to be the first to witness him as the risen Lord was not Peter, was not James and John, it was Mary Magdalene. Amen. Now, the word apostle in the Bible means one who is sent on a mission with a message. It is also a title, so there's apostle small a, <laughs> There's Apostle capital A, the 12 apostles upon which the church was founded. But the word apostle as a, as a ministry actually throughout the New Testament is something that denotes both the role of men and women. 
So what that means is, is that when Jesus told Mary Magdalene, a woman of her day, a daughter of Abraham, to go and tell the good news of the resurrection to the men, what that means is that Mary Magdalene was the apostle to the apostles. And that ought to help us understand that Jesus must have known something that culture had forgotten. Because He treated women as God had intended. And His intent for the church is that we do the very same thing. And that's why the Apostle Paul gets it right and shares it with all of us in the book of Galatians when he instructs us about what this church is meant to look like. You see, the fall divided us on numbers of ways, created conflict in the human race. And Paul addresses three ways that the human race became embattled with, with itself after the fall. Ethni ethnically, racial bias, prejudice, bigotry, class warfare and struggle, and then the gender battle that we see beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And what Paul is saying is, look, we're now citizens of the kingdom of God. We get to live the way God intended. So let's say this together. In Christ, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ and heirs according to the promise. In the Jewish culture, only the sons of Abraham were the heirs to everything, including the blessing of God. Paul says, no, that's never what God planned. This is what God made possible and redeemed. We are all one together. And so let's just talk about some takeaways here today in terms of our treatment and honoring and blessing of women in the church today and in society. I want to suggest three things that we think about. And obviously, I recognize that the Scripture has a lot to say about roles in the home and, and gifting and differences and, and, and all those different things. And I'm not proposing to answer all those today, but I hope from now on you will approach all of those conversations with the grace and the understanding of what the baseline is in Scripture, which I believe I've shared with you accurately today. And let that inform your conversations that you have about this. And let us agree or disagree gracefully, but let us never compromise these baseline realities. First of all, the church must, must honor, respect, and include women as Jesus did. Amen. We must do that. That's why at our church, women serve as they're gifted. We have women serving in all sorts of capacities in this church, helping lead our ministries. We have women who have taught and will teach in this series from this pulpit. We want to honor women as being gifted. Ephesians chapter 4, God gave evangelists or, or apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers to equip the saints to do work of ministry. That word apostle 
is that word, that, that role, not the title apostle, but that role of a one on a mission, just like Mary Magdalene. The word prophet refers to men and women alike. And so we believe clearly that we want women to be honored as equally valued and capable and welcome to serve in your gifting here because we believe that's what God intended. The church must work against cultural injustices against women. We must speak out when women are not given the opportunities and the privileges. We must come against sex trafficking, even though that's a bigger issue than women. It certainly is largely women. We need to defend and support women who are being abused. And we need to expect them to be treated with dignity and quality. And men, it's time for us to actually admit that society hasn't done that well. And we have largely contributed to that. Man, I'm hitting all the hot buttons here, aren't I? Actually, I'm not. <laughs> Just some of them. And then finally, the church must welcome women as co-heirs and partners in the gospel. If Jesus chose a woman to be the first to witness Him alive and then to declare the good news to the very men who were called to follow Him as His disciples, and it's time for us to honor what women can bring and do. And we've attempted to be that here at the journey since its onset. And we will continue to do that. I know for some of you, you have sat here and said, yeah, but what about this? What about that? What about this? I'd be happy to talk to you about this and that and the whatabouts. But I hope you see the baseline here and where these conversations are to take place and how they should happen. And I want to say to the women here, I recognize that I, a man, have just spoken about the role of women in the church. And some of you probably would have done a lot better job at it because there are things I don't know that I don't know yet. But I hope you feel valued and welcome to be partners. We desperately need you. We are not good <laughs> without you. Let's pray.